Welcome to Coffee, Grief, and Gratitude, a podcast by Coffee and Grief. I'm Maria Gibson, and this is my mom, Annie Gudger. We're a mom-daughter team who talk about grief. We started this podcast to learn more about grief, to be part of the conversation in normalizing grief. We're not looking for any answers, because there really aren't any. We're just looking for a conversation. And to tell you a little bit about us, my story is that my biggest grief was being widowed when I was 28 and pregnant with Maria's older brother. Everything in my world changed. Eventually, for the for the good. Eventually, there was Scott, my amazing husband, and then Maria, our beautiful daughter. I'm fond of saying that grief is the source of my superpowers. It's where I learned to not take time for granted. It's where I learned compassion and love in a bigger, deeper way. It's where I learned to be a beauty seeker, a joy seeker. I wrote my way through grief. I filled stacks of journals. Years later, I took those stacks as raw material and wrote a memoir. The fifth chamber is a story of love and loss. The fifth chamber, as in, if your heart had a fifth chamber, what would you fill it with? It's my grief story and how I found my way back to me, how I found my way back to love and a beautiful life. It just came out in September. I'm delighted to tell you. And we will put um, information in the show notes about the book. You can buy it wherever you buy your books. So for me, I was raised by my mom here who was grieving. Grief was very normalized in our home. It's something we talked about around the dinner table and in the car often. A thing I've realized over the past few years is when we don't share our griefs, they become secrets and tear people up. But in sharing them, we can connect with each other on a deep level. Personally, the past several years, I've lost multiple people in my life and several animals. I have horses and a few cats. Uh, many deaths in my life have been major benchmarks in how I view the world. We like to say that grief is transformative. You don't need to stay stuck in the hard parts. Grief is one of life's certainties. It allows us to be connected to each other's humanity. If you're here in the early stages of grief, we're here to say it's hard. We're here to say to be kind to yourself and thank yourself for showing up, for being curious about what grief can look like in its wholeness. These conversations aren't a prescription. We're just here offering a little bit of hope. So as we like to say, grab your coffee and let's talk. Today, we're delighted to welcome Kate Carol DeGudis, who will read a piece of her writing and then we'll be in conversation with her. Hi, Kate. Hi, Annie. Hi, Maria. We're so happy you're here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. So now a little bit, a little more about Kate. Kate Carol DeGudis is a genderqueer writer whose work examines sexuality and qualities of gender expression in order to explore how butch women dismantle traditional modes of masculinity and inhabit a territory of masculine identity that has nothing to do with cisgender men. As critics have become louder and more oppositional about LGBTQ plus issues, Kate feels an urgent need to counter and subvert traditional images and narratives. Their first book, Objects in Mirror Are Closer Than They Appear, won two national and one regional book awards. Learn more at katecaroldegudas.com and we will put her website in the show notes. 
So Kate, what will you be reading for us today? I'm going to read a piece for you that's coming out in an anthology from Bloomsbury Books called Girl by Default. Four blonde girls, wavy tresses cascade to the shoulders of two of them. They wear white gloves, not visible in this photo. One is outfitted in impossibly white sandals. The other girl's spotless white knee socks slouch towards her ankles and her black patent leather Mary Janes. The youngest child sits barefoot on the glider where some mother or grandmother or aunt has posed all four for the photo labeled on the back in blue ink, July 4th, 1968. The girl who looks straight at the camera has hair not much longer than it will be 55 years later when every four weeks she gets a non-binary cut with clippers at the queer barber shop within walking distance of her house. She is girl by default, girl by the fact of her dress, which matches the other three, and the bow taped into her hair by her mother. There is no mistaking this child's gender. Her PF flyers, designed to help kids run faster and jump higher, once white canvas, look gray in this photo. On this day, no white anklets trimmed in lace, favored by the girl's mother. For some reason, her mother has tied the damp shoes onto bare feet, sparking right then a lifelong aversion to shoes without socks. I remember feeling the bottoms of my feet pruning up in those shoes, remember the stifling humidity exacerbated I got to back up. Remember the stifling humidity that exacerbated the discomfort between my toes. Worst of all, I remember the fabric of the matching navy blue dresses. The complex textured structure of the twill actually made it tougher even than the shoes I wore. My three and a half year old self felt how stiff the fabric was the moment my mother pulled the dress over my head. The bodice and armholes chafed at the delicate skin at the front of my armpits and rubbed raw my tiny nipples. The flared skirt spread around me when I finally sat on that glider, but then my legs stuck to the varnished slats. My wife calls me her special snowflake. So many environmental factors affect me. Scented laundry detergent makes me sneeze and causes an immediate headache. Soy products bloat my belly and lead to an uncontrollable gas. Air fresheners swell my eyes shut and trigger wheezing and whining. Gluten pimples my arms in tiny white bumps and creates some weird internal chemical brew resulting in body odor. Starch produces hives bordering on welts, Wherever it touches me, my sensitive system struggles. I'm projecting, I know, when I look at this picture. I see a child who wants to jump off and out of the frame. A kid who had begged her mother 10, 20, maybe 30 minutes earlier to be excused from wearing the hot, heavy dress. That the dressed, 
matched the others only added to my misery, I'm sure. But that might simply be more projection. What I know for certain is that even at three and a half, this outfit didn't square with my self-image. So even though a slight smile plays across that tiny face, even though my eyes are bright and engaged with the photographer, I believe that kid wanted to return to wherever it was that left the mud stains on her knees and shins. Why didn't my mother wash off my legs? Perhaps she cared less than I remember that her firstborn mostly refused to dress like other girls, preferred to play alone rather than with the girls in white gloves. My mother had a great ability to let kids be kids up to a point, age eight or so. Then she expected me to follow social cues, expected me to look like a girl, even purchased candies, shoes, and a sleeveless aqua polyester dress for my junior high graduation. She left me to figure out how to ascend and descend the stage stairs in backless three-inch heels. In a second photo, taken a moment before or a moment after this one, the girl sits in the middle of the bench, her arm casually reaching out to the arm of the glider, self-contained amid the girly chaos, head cocked to the right side even then, considering what? Perhaps the twill and canvas in her future, Carhartt chore coats and logger jeans, white canvas Jack Purcell sneakers, so much more butch than the daintily tapered PF flyers in the picture, Nine years later, her father will take her back to school shopping and buy her a 1970s-style pair of navy blue Keds with red and orange stripes across the toes. Very obviously a boy's shoe. But her father won't argue when she picks them out. He'll just ask the store owner to make sure they fit correctly. Later that day, her mother puts the sneakers still in their box, on the top shelf of the girl's closet. It doesn't occur to the girl that her mother meant to return them to the children's bootery, the small shoe store in their new Northern California hometown. But before she can, the child puts them on and sneaks out of the house and down to the creek. Careful, she believes, not to get the white rubber edges of the shoes dirty. But once home, she sees her mistake. Even soap and water can't remove the ochre dust of a California summer. She takes care as she wraps the shoes in their tissue and puts them back on the shelf in her closet. She forgets about them. Forgets until her mother takes down the box and inspects the no longer new sh shoes. Fury fills her mother's brown eyes. The Keds cannot be returned. Her mother doesn't say this. Instead, she says, well, you'll just have to wear dirty shoes on the first day of school. That's okay. At least they're the right shoes. And the girl wears them almost every day with socks. Real socks. Not the polyester ones with lace on them.
Oh, Kate, I love this piece so much. Thank you for reading it with us today. Oh, thank you for asking. It really, it's, I've heard it for our listeners. I've heard it before and it just, it just touches my heart so deeply every time this little girl who wants to be one way and is one way and then has the social pressures to be in a different way. Um, when you say she is girl by default, like even hear, hearing you say that almost makes me cry every time. Mm. Um, and then what you're doing, what you're doing with this and how you're helping other people really consider gender in a different way um, is, is beautiful. And part of why I wanted you to read it today, it's a different kind of grief than what we've heard on our podcast so far. And that's really important to us that we expand our knowledge about what grief is. Yeah, it's not just the grief of a dying parent or the grief of a lost child or um, a beloved pet. It, Yeah, it's the grief about not fitting into society. You know, for my mom and I, we fit more in like gender norm boxes. So for you, like kind of what is it like to not fit in that box? That's a great question about gender boxes and and how you fit. And currently right now, I'm talking to you from Iowa City, Iowa, and I divide my time between Portland, Oregon and Iowa City, Iowa. My wife loves Iowa, um, loves this landscape. I um, have a hard time with Iowa, although Iowa City is a tiny blue pinprick in the middle of a sea of red everywhere else. But I was just in Portland and uh, I went to the doctor there because I'm getting allergy shots because in addition to Iowa being a red state, it's also a state full of allergens. Um, and so I've been getting allergy shots and every doctor I have seen in Iowa has, you know, sex and there's M and F. You got to check one of those boxes. And when I went to the allergist in Portland, Oregon, they had female assigned at birth, male assigned at birth, genderqueer, non-binary, transgender female, transgender male. And just that recognition of the concept of different boxes, that there are different boxes, the gender exists along a continuum was so, I don't know what the word is. It's probably, it just made me feel safe actually and seen. Um, so when you don't fit in a gender box, that's a long way to get to your answer, Maria. But when you don't fit in a gender box, you very often don't get seen. Um, or you get seen incorrectly. And I, you know, I get sirred all the time. Um, can I help you, sir? Thank you, sir. Um, and I used to really feel shame, I think, about that because my mother so much wanted a girly girl and I'm the oldest. And my, one of my other sisters is the girly girl. And um, she used to beg me 
to buy shoes that were just like a half size too small so that she could wear them because she knew I would only wear them once. You know, my mom would would insist like those candies shoes. Um, my sister was so happy she inherited them. And when I graduated from high school, my mother wanted me to wear espadrilles. Um, <laughs> so I got tiny espadrilles um, that jammed up my feet, but then my sister could inherit them sooner rather than later. And there's so many ways that this culture enforces gender. It it wants people to fit in a box, I guess. I guess that's the easiest way to say it. And I don't fit in a box and there's a whole lot of people that don't fit in a box. And even though you say you and your mom fit in the traditional gender box of F, I'd say you probably don't fit in the gender box of F that we see in the movies or we see on TV or we um, read about in the newspaper because you're out in a barn bucking 75 pound bales of hay right and your mom is out there um can i say kicking butt and taking names is that am i allowed to say that on this podcast but sure. your mom is your mom is a force of nature doing that so um i think what i have come to realize as i age and continue to look at this issue more and more most of us don't really fit in that box but the culture wants us in a box. That's what the Barbie movie was all about. Not fitting in a box. Yep. I am Knuff. <laughs> I am Knuff. Yeah, it is. And that and that's what was such a nice surprise about that movie. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what I loved about it. Wow. That's that I I I so appreciate, we so appreciate you sharing all that. Um, and it just makes me. So I have different questions that I usually have when we're on here because um, we always ask people to tell a brief version of their grief story. So I'm wondering if there's, if there are other aspects of this particular kind of grief that you would like to share with us that, that you haven't shared yet. Sure. Um, I have a couple of grief stories around this and it, I, you sent me those questions in advance and I thought, and, and when I was looking at them, I thought, oh, which grief story do you want me to tell? Do you want me to tell you about my parents dying? Do you want me to tell you about the end of my marriage? Do you want me to tell you about what it's like to be in a body, learning to live in a body that doesn't feel like it fits in the culture, but also does not want to, I have never wanted to transition. Um, I'm okay being masculine of center, but it took a lot of work. And when I, um, when I was younger, when I finally came out to my parents, my mom said, you know, I'm so happy that you don't have one of those lesbian haircuts. And this was like in the early 90s. And we all tried to figure out what she meant by that. And I think what she meant was a mullet because mullets were very popular then. Um, and then fast forward uh, 25, 30 years. That's a lot of 
math for a liberal arts major, but my mom was on her deathbed and and nonverbal. And my sister Sue was there with me. And Sue had been down at her home in Northern California, flew up because I said, mom's dying, get here. And our other sister, Jewel, was flying up that evening. And because Sue was there, I could take a break. And I said, I think I'm going to go get my hair cut really short. <laughs> my mother, really, she'd been nonverbal for like two days, sat straight upright in the bed and said, oh, honey, no, please. And my sister and I just laugh about my sister Sue and I laugh about that so much. It's like she's on her deathbed and she's worried that I'm going to look too butch with my haircut. And the Even irony as is she's getting. <laughs> well, the irony is it, when when the Bloomsbury book comes out, you'll get to see the photo. And my hair in the photo is shorter than it is now. So. OK, well. I just think that's so funny and tender, right? Um, that even as your mom is getting ready to depart this plane, that that's that she's concerned about your haircut. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are so many stories like that, right? About not fitting in um, with my, just even with my family, the pressure from my family to conform. Um, and, uh, and not look masculine of center. And even in my first marriage, um, my wife was really uncomfortable with me looking butch. And there was a period of time uh, when gay marriage was legal in Oregon in 2004 or 2000, I guess it was 2004. Um, there were six weeks when gay marriage was legal in Oregon. So we got married mostly to prove a point at that point in time we had been together 21 years so we didn't really need a piece of paper that said you're married we felt married but we felt like we had to prove a point nevertheless my now ex-wife didn't want me to wear a suit so i wore a velvet pantsuit and looked like hillary clinton and it, I look at those pictures and I think, who is that person? I'd like to see those pictures. <laughs> I, I'll maybe show them to you someday. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. Um, if you could go back and say something to your younger self, what might you tell them? Oh, if I could tell my younger self anything, it would be the classic Dan Savage, it gets better, um, and you will find your tribe, and you will find clothes that feel like they fit your body correctly. And this will just be my moment for a public service announcement. <laughs> um, it used to be that in the... 40s, 50s, and 60s, before the Stonewall uprising, men and women had to have three pieces of clothing on their body that was specific to their gender. And 
I like to tell people when, especially when I'm teaching like young queer kids in writing classes, I would be arrested today because the only thing that I'm wearing that is specific to my gender happens to be my underwear. And I think if the police saw them, they would not believe that they were gender specific underwear. So. Wow. I thank you for that public service announcement. Right. That's well, that's, yeah. Thank you to Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson and all the people who came before me that did so much heavy lifting so I could be who I am. Yeah. Well, and you continue to do that for yourself and for others. That's, that's part of the beauty um, of that's part of why I love that you talk about this, that you write about it, that you mentor younger writers. Um, you know, you, it's, you're making a, your, your voice is being heard and it's a really important voice. Thank you. Um, yeah. So a lot of things that we frequently ask here aren't, don't really apply to this conversation. And that is, that's totally fine. It's part of why we like doing it. Um, but it just makes me think like in, a, in addition to the younger writers that you've mentored, um, what are other ways that you support people in their gender identity? Um, well, particularly in Iowa, um, last legislative session, Iowa passed 17, passed 17 anti-LGBTQ bills. Um, seriously? Seriously. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, how, how can one state pass so many bills? So um, my wife and I um, support uh, United Action for Youth, which uh, helps support trans youth. Uh, there's a great um, library here in Iowa City that's LGBTQ archives. So we've donated books to them and... Hopefully someday I will start volunteering there. I just haven't, I just haven't done that yet. I moved here in the middle of a pandemic, so I'm still getting used to like being out in the world uh, and interacting with people, not wearing a mask and not being afraid. Yeah. Well, and if you, if there are resources that we can put in the show notes that you can share with me and we'll put in the show notes, I'd be really happy to do that. Yeah, there are some great there are some great resources out there, um, both for queer youth and for trans youth. And I think right now I feel increasing panic for trans youth in in particular. Um, it's it's hard to be non-binary. It's hard to be genderqueer. Um, it's even harder to be trans when we're living in a country that is demonizing that so much. I I was with a friend in Northern California last month. She has three gender nonconforming kids and they live in Texas. So they're leaving Texas, right? Because in Texas, it's actually become like Orwellian. You can report your neighbor for providing gender non-conforming clothes for their children, for instance, or you can report a doctor who provides gender affirming care. It's, it's 
it's like the pendulum has swung back so hard. We're in 1880. I know, I know you, you know, this is just audio, so you can't see my face, but like, it makes me cry. It's just so, it's just so inhuman. Um, and I appreciate that you are doing what you're doing and um, helping to raise awareness. And that's what we can do in our, for each of us, you know, within our, within our world, in our village and our people is to raise, is to raise awareness because um, we want to treat people with kindness, right? Not, not yeah. demonize people. Yeah, we sure do. And I think, uh, you know, the question I get asked very often by my friends in Portland, as you know, Annie, is when, when are you moving back to Portland? We all want to know. <laughs> and the answer now is it depends on what happens in 2024. Mm -hmm. um, I think I see a real move towards fascism in this uh, nation now. And I have said over and over again to my wife, and, and we have um, Jewish family members on both sides of our earth. I guess I just have it on the paternal side. She has it on both sides. But I say over and over again to her, I will not be the last Jew in the Warsaw ghetto. Um, and I can't stay in a country that continues to try to, <laughs> to go back to what you asked at the very beginning, Maria, force us into a box, force us to behave. Um, in the manner that they think is appropriate. Um, I just won't do it. So in listening to you talk, I was curious um, if there was like a point in your life that uh, changed to where you're very sure that you will, you know, I, I don't know if it's identify the way you want to, but as you just said, like you will not be forced into going backwards or was it like a slow burn through your life or was there like a point where you're like, no, this is changing now. I will authentically be myself. That's a, that is a really good question. Um, when did I, how did I authentically become myself? But I can say even as a, as a seven-year-old kid, my mom would say to me, you can wear pants to school one day a week. And, and we lived in Minnesota at the time. So I had a full snowsuit, you know, so I had snow pants that would pull up and then my dress or my skirt would be up around my waist because I had snow pants on, which was not comfortable. And then, a, a you know, a big jacket. Um, and even then I wanted to wear pants. I didn't want to wear the clothes that my mom bought for me. And school shopping was always a nightmare. She would always say, humor me just try this on um and she she bought this dress when i was in i think fourth grade and it was fabric that was painted with buttons all over it different colored buttons so it was rainbow it should have been queer i didn't know that back then back then i don't think the queers owned the rainbow now we do um and she would ask me to wear it to school and I would say, nope, not going to wear that. And 
again and again and again and again. And finally, one day she said, you're wearing this dress to school. And I said, all right. And oh, the other thing, it had this blue vinyl belt that went right across the middle of you. And it it had a big square buckle. So I looked like Mrs. Claus. So everything about it was so wrong for me. I'm, I mean, dresses were wrong for me anyways, but this was like exponentially wrong for me. And at recess, the first morning recess, so 1030, we lived very close to the school. And if you went to the far corner of the schoolyard, I could climb over a six foot tall chain link fence and be six houses from where I lived. And that's what I did. And I went home and we had a front door. This was Northern California now. And we had a um, stucco house. So it was Spanish architecture, Mexican architecture. And our front door looked like a big Mexican door. It was carved. It had a big pewter handle on it and no doorknob. So you always had to knock to be let in. And so I knocked at the door and my mom came to the door and said, what are you doing here? And I said, I won't be at school in this dress. I'm not going back today. And she said, okay. And about, again, probably 30 years later, I was at Ikea and they had these pillows for sale, throw pillows that had painted on buttons all over them. So I got them for her and I just put them on her glider on her front porch didn't say a word. And she went outside to sit on the glider and she saw them. And I heard her laughing so hard because she knew. She knew. Yeah. It's so, it's so good that she could laugh about it all those years later. Yeah. And that you could, that you could, that you could be the instigator, right? That you saw the pillows and you're like, I, I cannot pass this up. Oh, no way. No way. These. And I've never really written about that button dress um, because it's it's hard to convey the horror of how it felt on my body. Uh, but to go back to your question, Maria, when when did I become so much myself? I think I always was. However, it it took time to have my own money. So I could buy the clothes I wanted to not live at home with my parents again. So I could wear the clothes I wanted so I could wear the shoes I wanted. And ultimately it took a divorce from my first wife to really fully embody my butchness. So it's only been like 16 years. I'm saying, I, I can really identify with the um, just my parents used to say it's Maria's way or the highway when I was a kid and um, and also about clothes too but I wanted to wear you know cowboy boots and in elementary school I consistently wanted to wear soccer shorts which my teachers decided was not okay for some reason um, so just in that sticking up for yourself and you know, feeling in your gut what is truly you and going for it. So did they send you home because you were in soccer shorts? No, 
but my I wasn't allowed to go on a field trip one time if I didn't wear pants because <laughs> a old white lady in Portland, Oregon thought I would be too cold, I guess. Oh, oh, I tell you what, shirts are my true nature, so I feel for you. Yeah, she definitely lived in soccer shorts and that field trip. We said, OK, you have you. These are her rules and you can you can choose and we support you if you're not going to wear long pants because that's what she wanted to do. That's pretty amazing parenting that that you let her wear her shorts no matter what and gave her the option not to go on a field trip. Yeah, it only good, made sense. Good Maybe. job. I was going to be with Maria for a long time, that teacher, just for one year. <laughs> right, right. Man, well, it feels like a really good place to land. And yet we always say, and we always like to ask if there's something else that you'd like to add or something that bubbled up for you while we were having this really beautiful, thoughtful talk. Um, we'd love to hear it. Give me just a second, because you had a question that I thought was great. Hang on. I know, Maria, you're going to have to cut this. That's fine. We've so know. deviated from our script. I love it. Right. So you have a question, which is, what would you say to someone who is grieving? Um, and I think there are, right now, there are, so many parents of trans children and there are so many trans preteens and then trans young adults who don't know where to go and what to do. Um, and I would just say to them, you have a family in the queer community. Um, you have a place here and you matter. And we will fight for you, just like people fought for um, sexual orientation. We will fight for gender identity. And you're not alone. That's a beautiful thing to say to somebody else. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for having me. And thank you both for this amazing platform that you provide for people, both the reading series and the blog posts and there's something else I'm forgetting. You do three things. Um, but we, we also run a, a writing group twice. Oh a yeah. Year. Right. Yeah. Your writing group, which is about to start right it's in October, start in October, October 1st. Wow. Is it full? It is almost full. We That's would gladly great. take a couple more writers if they wanted to join us, but we're, we have a, we're at a really good spot with it. And it's called Write Your Grief Out? It is. It's called Write Your Grief Out. It's a 30-day writing group um, that we facilitate. And um, it's a it's been a beautiful experience. We, I, we'd like to offer a way for people to see their grief through different lenses and maybe experience their grief in a way they haven't before. It is not, it is not a traditional, it's not a traditional writing group. That's cool. And and I like what you said about seeing your grief through different lenses, because it isn't just the same lens. My grief now about politics and what is happening in our country is different than my grief was, say, in 
1992 when the Oregon Citizens Alliance put forth Measure 9. And um, then I was terrified. Now I'm older and it's easier for me to get angry and also just say, I'm leaving. Bye. Kate, we just really want to thank you for being here with us today and for having this conversation that we haven't had with someone else on our podcast. And that is the beauty of being able to podcast is opening all kinds of doors. Um, so people listening can have a different experience and learn more and become even more curious about their lives and other people's lives and go on to educate themselves about something they might not have known that much about. So it's part of why I like, I love that piece of writing, but I, I super appreciate the conversation we've had following the writing. Thank you for having me. I do have one other question for you real quick. Do you have sure. like any memoirs or something in that realm to recommend as additional resources to learn from uh, people that stand in your type of shoes? That is a great question. Memoirs that deal with um, gender identity. The most banned book in America today, the most banned book, is a graphic memoir called Gender Queer by Maya uh, Kobe. And I encourage everybody to read it because it's about her journey of self-discovery and finding, honestly, finding the right clothes. And then the other book I just got is by a Portland organ writer, and it's coming out this week in paperback. And it's called Diary of a Misfit by Casey Parks. I think that's uh, a great book. And then, of course, there is one seminal piece of work that everybody should read called Stone Butch Blues by Leslie Feinberg. It's a uh, um, Romanoclef, which is a word that's not used anymore. It's a uh, um, it's a what are what do they call it now? An autobiographical novel um, about his life and surviving as ultimately a trans man. Well, thank Those you. Are... I, I always um, appreciate being able to go to additional resources to you know further uh, education and all that. I don't know what I'm saying. You say what you're going to say. No, I was, I was just going to say like, you know, thank you for those titles um, because it's people don't know where to start next, where to go next. So you've given us additional information. We can, we'll put it in the show notes and people can go if they're not already familiar with those books. It's a great recommendations um, and go check them out. Yeah. And for any agents that are listening right now, I am working on, uh, an essay collection called Will We See You in Something More Feminine Tomorrow, which is something a person once said to me at a funeral. So that's an amazing title. It's an amazing title. And um, and you know, I just we wish you all the best with having that, with have with finding the agent and having that book out in the world. We need that story. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kate, for being with us tonight. Uh, if you want to connect with us some more, 
Our email is coffeeandgrief at gmail.com. We also are on Facebook. We'd love to have you join our Facebook community. It's the Coffee and Grief community. Um, come in there and there's always some great conversations going on. We have our coffee talks the first Thursday of every month. It's five different readers reading a personal grief story similar to what you've heard today. There will be the Zoom link on our Facebook page. If there's something you'd like us to talk about, please let us know at that email, coffeeandgrief at gmail.com. So we just really appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Um, and thank you again, Kate, for being here. And we always like to end by saying, be good to yourself, be kind to your hearts, drink plenty of water, do something kind for yourself. And if you have the bandwidth, do something kind for another. With that, we'll say goodbye, come back. We love you. It's been a joy. I will happily come back. I love both of you. I think the work you're doing is so important. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Bye. We love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.